Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. Before we open up the scriptures, uh, it's my understanding that there are really kind of three levels to the church. There is the local church, like our church right here. There is the regional church, which basically covers the work of the church in a particular region. And then there's the global church. And we are connected to the regional church very closely. We have two churches that planted our church. But I want to give you just a report, a very brief report for a second, because in our mission to, to reach the world for Jesus Christ, I do the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and about 10 days ago, many of you went to the banquet that I hosted for about 20-some-odd football teams. And that night, as we preached the gospel, one of the captains of a local football team came up to me with a card in his hand and said, I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. And so I took the card, and it had his number on there. He, he had his school on there and, and all of that. And so the, about five days later, I followed up with him. And so I walked into the field house of this, of this uh, school the other day, and he said, yes, I still want to commit my life to Christ. I've been praying. I've been reading the Bible that you gave me at the banquet every day. And really what I want to do is I want to live for Christ, and I want to influence my teammates for Christ. Well, we have uh, Pastor Carlton Weathers up at Grace Fellowship. I have him plugged in up at JSU, and he's been discipling football players for the last couple years through FCA. And one of the players that he's been discipling is from the area where this young man just gave his life to Christ is from. He's a, he was a wide receiver at JSU, but he's just finished his career, and he's back at his home church in this area. And so I called this former wide receiver up, and I said, we've got this guy at your alma mater who's given his life to Christ, would, would you be able to possibly meet with him? He said, I'll be there in three minutes. He came in three minutes. I sat down with the current player, who's the captain of the football team, the former player who played at that same school and then played at JSU, and I watched them begin to interact with one another, and he said, the, the JSU player said, you know what, I had to make the same decision when I was sitting in the same chair through a guy from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and he said, my life has never been the same, and I influenced not only this team, but the team at Jacksonville State for Christ. I want to start meeting with you on Wednesday afternoons after practice, and I will begin to disciple you and any of the other Christians on the team. That's how the work, the work of the church happens as we partner together in region, not just meeting together on Sundays, but going out into our community, loving people, caring for people, teaching them the gospel, and then seeing these relationships form. I'm excited to see what's going to happen on that football team as, as, as all of that happens. But we, we just, church, I, I just want us to understand there is a broader, greater, deeper, wider work that's going on in this area than what goes on in these, in these four walls. All right, now with that, let's turn to the book of 2 Samuel. If you're visiting with us, we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. This morning marks the first Sunday will be in the second part of Samuel. It's really, as Phil indicated last week, it's just one book. They just ran out of parchment, and so they put the other, the other half on the, on the second part of the parchment. And so we call it 2 Samuel, but it's all one work. Let's just enter in for a moment the context in which we are about to, to read. The year is 1010 B.C., or thereabouts. The place is the land of the Philistines. A little village called Ziklag, to be exact. The nations that are at war with one another are the Philistines, who worship a god called Dagon, and the Israelites, who worship Yahweh, the one true God, the covenant God of Israel. The key figure in the story is a young man named David. He is divinely anointed as the next king of Israel, but he has yet to be appointed into that position because there is a king called Saul who still sits on that throne. David has been described as a man after what? God's own heart. Saul has been rejected officially by Yahweh because of his clear disobedience to Yahweh's commands and his heart of rebellion against God. Now David has killed Goliath. 
And, and in killing Goliath, he's standing for the glory of God. And all of Israel rallies around David at this valiant, courageous young warrior. So much so that when the Israelites come back from defeating the Philistines in war, all of the, the people in the communities of Israel are celebrating. And they say, Saul has killed his thousands, but what? David is ten thousands. And so what begins to work in the heart of Saul at this point? Jealousy, envy, covetousness, and all of those things. And so, ultimately, Saul leads an all-out manhunt to try to find David, who is a fugitive in his own land. And why is he a fugitive? Has he done something wrong? He's done nothing wrong. He just is the object of the king's wrath, object of the king's ire. And so, David finds refuge. And in what, in what land does David find refuge? The Philistines. The arch enemies. As a matter of fact, he goes to the city that, that Goliath is from. And he convinces the king of that city that he no longer has an allegiance to Israel because the king of Israel is after him and all of these kinds of things. And so the king of Gath provides this village Ziklag so that David and his band of 600 men and all of their families could live. And in the midst of all of this, the king of Gath says, now you know what, you're going to have to go out to battle with us against Israel. And David says, fine, we'll, we'll go do it. And so David gets his 600 men and they head out to the battlefield to face his own people, Israel. And you're thinking, what is going to happen? Well, about that time, the lords of the Philistines come to the king of Gath and say, there is no way David and his 600 men are going to go out to battle with us because he could have a change of heart, a change of mind, and this would be a way for him to get back into good graces with, with Saul if he turns on us and kills us during the midst of the battle. So send them back to Ziklag. And so the king of Gath just says, guys, you can't go to battle with us. The lords of the Philistines won't have it. Go back to Ziklag. And when they get back to Ziklag, can you remember what happened? Yeah. The Amalekites, another of the enemies of Israel, had come in and raided Ziklag and took every woman and every child and burned the entire town. And they, David and all of the men are just beside themselves and so they go, and ultimately what they do is they defeat this Amalekite band of, of raiders, and they take and seize their women and their children, and no one was lost, and they get all the spoils of war, and they come back to Ziklag. And they're there for about two to three days as they're trying to put their life back together and they're rejoicing in God's provision over sparing every single one of their family members. They're divvying up all the spoils. Surely they're about to start rebuilding and they're concerned though. At this point, they're concerned because they know that there's a battle. The battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. And at this point, David and his men and all of the families are probably anxious. They're anticipating what's going to happen. And think about it this, y'all. They're probably thinking, what's going to happen if the Philistines defeat the Israelites? But what's going to happen if the Israelites defeat the Philistines? Like, we're still stuck. Because if Saul wins, he's still after us. If the Philistines win, then we love Israel and now it seems all hope is gone. They are like in a no-win situation, but they're anxious to hear what's about to happen. Now, the reality is it's already happened and they just haven't heard about it yet. And so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1 in 2 Samuel, and we will understand the events that have unfolded. After the death of Saul, and what we found out in the last chapter is that Saul committed suicide. He asked his armor bearer to kill him before the Philistines come in and, and kill him, but the armor bearer had a fear of the anointing of God uh, on Saul's life, and he would not kill him. And so the text tells us that, that Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. That's the, that's the factual account. So look at verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, Behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Why are his clothes torn and dirt on his head? This is a sign of mourning. This is a sign of grief. 
this is a, a, a sign of, of despair. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Why did he do that? Because he knew that David was next in line. He knew that David was in opposition to Saul. Saul was the official king, but David is the anointed king. And so he pays homage to what he now knows is the new king. And so David says to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, well, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, son Jonathan are dead also. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, Well, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Let's pause for a second. What would happen in these days is that there would be people who understood that there would be spoil to be gotten. There would be resources to be attained if they hung out on the edge of war between two different opposing battles. And people could get really rich if after the war and after the battle is fought to come in and get spears and swords and armor and gold and armament and you name it. And that's what this Amalekite is doing. He's taking kind of a page out of the book of the Amalekites who were excellent raiders. And that's what he's done. And he says, by chance, he says, by chance I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the arm, armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. There is so much confusion about whether or not what he is saying right here is true. I don't think there should be any confusion. The narrator in chapter 31 says that Saul fell on his own sword and he died. What is going on then? Why, why would this random, by chance Amalekite run 85 miles to Ziklag to give this false report to this, this David who is on the run against the people of Israel? You say, well, it doesn't make sense. It does make sense if we all understand that deep within the human heart is a self-promoting manipulative spirit that tries to take advantage of people for our own good. And that's exactly what this Amalekite is doing. This Amalekite tries to seize the moment because he knows that, that David is going to ascend to the throne in Israel at some point, and he is trying to wiggle his way into ascendancy to be right next to David and all of the power in Israel. That's his, that's his goal. And so he tries to say, I ended Saul's life for you. I, I, I contributed to your promotion, David. And here you go. Here's his armlet and here's his sword. This, this is for you. This is for a token of my allegiance to you, my Lord. An Amalekite calling a, a rebel Israelite, my Lord, it is terminology that says, I want to come underneath you and I want to be your right-hand man. And so church, that's what's happening here. And so how does David respond? David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? 
And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This is a legitimate question. If you can remember twice, David had the opportunity to put a hand to the Lord's anointed and he would not do it. The armor bearer had the opportunity to put his hand to the Lord's anointed and he would not do it. Why? Because they had a respect and a reverence for God. And they understood that God had his own king and God would take out his own king in his own timing. And so he says, how in the world could you think that you had the right to do this? And so David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And so here, what we have is the report that the Amalekite gives of Saul and his son's death, and Israel's disarray, and fleeing for their lives. And then you see David's response, and all of his his men's response to this news. What's interesting is that you would expect David to kill the Amalekite immediately upon this news, and then look at the lamenting, and the mourning, and the weeping, and all of that. But I believe that the narrator puts the weeping and the mourning and the lamenting at the very beginning to be prominent in the story because he wants us to understand how sad, how broken, how, how, how despondent that, that David and his men and their families are over the, the, this terrible news. And it ushers into us the, the measured response that David gives in a lament. And so if we think about this chapter, church, what we, what we want to understand is that there's really three sections. There's this report of calamity that the Amalekite gives. There's the response to the calamity that is immediate. And that response to the calamity is, is just despondency. It's, it's desperation. And then it's, and then it's a- exacting justice on this one who is guilty of striking or saying he's guilty of striking the Lord's anointed. But what we want to concentrate on now is this reflection that David gives, starting in verse 17 all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 17 and 18. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Church, let's just stop before we look at the actual lamentation and let's, let's understand verses 17 and 18. Because we, we see about five pieces of information in verse 17 and 18 that are important. All right. First of all, it's called a lamentation. What is a lamentation? A lamentation is like an official, an official cry of, of mourning, an official cry of discouragement. That's what a lamentation is. It's it's not like this immediate mourning, this immediate weeping and wailing, this immediate despondency. No, what what it is, it's processing through the, the mourning, the despondency, the discouragement, the sadness that you're feeling, and then communicating that. Writing it down, speaking it out, recording it so that others can join in. Lamentation is an official expression of discouragement, an official expression of sadness and grief. That's what a lamentation is. And so David laments and he writes this lamentation and he expresses it. All right. The second observation that we want to make is that this is David's lamentation. And you would you would almost think that if we if we just take the natural position of the human heart and you think about David, who's been on the run for 10 to 15 years or something like that. Saul has been chasing him down and trying to murder him left and right. You would not think that David would write a lamentation. What would you think that he would write? Hallelujah, a song of celebration. He's finally dead. I'm rid of him. I finally have my life back. Let's rejoice. Thank you, Lord. But church, this is an example that David's heart was after God and His glory. 
Because David didn't first think about his own freedom and his own liberation, and now he gets his life back. He realizes that the glory of God is in some ways diminished in the eyes of Israel, in the eyes of the Philistine, and in the eyes of the nations because they have defeated God's people. This is David's lamentation. And we need to understand that when your heart beats for the glory of God, you respond to actions, you respond to even events like this in ways that the world would not expect. The third thing that we want to notice from verses 17 and 18 is that the lamentation is focused on Saul and Jonathan. It's not just Jonathan. It's Saul and Jonathan. And he has some really good things to say about Saul. He has some things that make us scratch our head what he says about Saul. And, and, and so what we, we probably should take from this is that in the midst of despondency and discouragement, we need to keep our minds and our hearts fixed on that which would edify and strengthen and build up. And that's exactly what he does. And notice that this lamentation is to be taught to the people of Judah. It's to be taught. In other words, he's commanding that not only am I going to write this out, not only am I going to express it to everyone here, this is something that I want everyone to learn. This is something that I want everyone to recite. I want us to understand the discouragement, the failure, the difficulty that we are experiencing as a people, and I want us to remember the Lord's anointed. I want us to remember His Son. I want us to remember what's happened. There is an essence in in which David is is rejecting what had happened previous to him. If you can remember in the book of Judges, it said that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it said that the people did not remember. They did not remember how the Lord had delivered them. They did not remember the Exodus. They did not remember. They did not remember. And David has said, "From as long as I'm going to be the king, we're going to remember. We're going to remember our successes. We're going to remember our failures. We're going to remember our glory. We're going to remember our shame." And then he says the the lamentation is to be found in the book of Jashar. This was a collection of poems and lamentations and writings that the people of Israel would read and recite and learn. The book of Jashar is no longer in existence. Nobody has a copy of it, but they did at this time and, and did perpetuate it for years. All right, given that, let's look at the lamentation. This is his official cry, his official response of mourning and grief to the news. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Look at the verse. Your glory, O Israel, is slain. Who's slain? Like, who is the glory? Saul and Jonathan are the glory. They are the ornament. They are the the centerpiece of Israel. Saul as king. Saul as the anointed. Jonathan as the most courageous, the most valiant, the most faithful, the the most worshiping soldier in the kingdom of Israel. They both are slain, he's saying. Your glory has been defeated. Your glory has been slain. How the mighty have fallen. No one was taller than Saul. No one was stronger than Saul. No one had more weaponry than Saul. No one had a better resume than Saul. And on top of that, no one was more courageous, more valiant, more loving, more faithful than Jonathan. And how the mighty in Israel have fallen. Verse 20 and verse 21. What does he say? He says, tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, no rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, no first fruits. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with all oil. What is he saying here? He said, don't tell the Philistines. Whatever you do, don't tell them. They'll have a field day with this news. That They'll celebrate like there's no tomorrow. They will gloat, they will taunt, they will rejoice, they will exult at the expense of Yahweh's reputation. And and sadly, what David didn't know is not, not only did the Philistines already know, they had already cut off Saul's head and mounted it to a wall. They had already begun to gloat over the defeat of Israel and they're triumphing over Yahweh, the covenant God of those people. 
And he says, you mountains of Gilboa, man, don't let any rain come on you. Don't experience dew. Let no fruit, let no trees bear fruit. Let no vegetables sprout up because you are the mountain that yielded the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan. That is kind of odd. But then again, is it really that odd? Jamie and I were on a bike ride this week and we were on Chief Ladiga Trail and um, went longer than we've ever gone. And so we crossed over into Georgia and, and on the right-hand side was a bike uh, kind of tucked by the trees. And there were kind of flowers surrounding this bike and kind of a, some words on top of the bike. You could tell that the bike had been there for quite a while. So I got online and I tried to figure out what happened there. And a man by the name of David Perkins was riding his bike on Chief Ladiga Trail, was crossing over an intersection where cars go, and abnormally, because he was a very safe rider, he did not look either way, and a car ran right into him and he died. This happened two years ago. Sad, tragic. But you know, I bet that David Perkins' family and friends, if they ever ride by that intersection, they probably wish that intersection did not exist. I know I was in a wreck about a year ago out here on Highway 21. And I'm telling you, it took me six months to try to even get near that intersection because of the impact that, that that made on my life. And so when he curses Mount Gilboa, it's not so much Mount Gilboa that he hates, he hates what happens there. And you know what? You and I, we experience things like that frequently. We are emotionally impacted and impacted for long term when things happen to us that we do, that, 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 that hurt us and that bring great pain. And I think that's what's going on here. Now, Let's continue. Let's continue because in verses 22 through 24, we see something very interesting and even confusing. He says, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. In other words, they were mighty in battle, they had great victories. They weren't just successful warriors, they were successful warriors for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. He says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, now, David, I've been with you so far, but it looks like to me you're having a little bit of a revisionist history here. I mean, you're calling Saul, as well as Jonathan, beloved and lovely, and that they were not divided David, can you not remember that Saul tried to kill his own son at least on two occasions? And, and, and are you just forgetting that? And, and, and David would say, no, I'm not forgetting that. I'm not. But I'm remembering, I'm remembering the reality that Saul and Jonathan went out to war. Listen, we don't get a lot of the stories about Saul's triumphs in war and in battle, protecting the people. We, we get the story about Jabesh Gilead where he protected that city. But if you can remember, one Sunday we saw a section of about five verses where the narrator says that Saul was mighty in battle and that he was triumphant over many, many people. We just don't get those exact stories. And, and Jonathan was the same way. And at the end of their life, here they are side by side, father and son, fighting for Israel for the glory of God. Regardless of what Saul's heart was, that's the reality. And David is recording it. He's remembering it the way that he should remember it, especially in this funeral song. And so look at verse 24. It says, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. You know, as a funeral song, I love what, what David does here skillfully. Because if you take note, David doesn't say to the people of Israel, the daughters of Israel, he was a great spiritual leader. He showed you the wonder of God. He, showed, he demonstrated how to worship and how to love and how to serve. Y'all ever been to a funeral where there is absolute revisionist history? And like you're like, is this the same person that I knew? 
Now, this doesn't sound like the same person. No, David doesn't do that. But what he says is, hey, he provided for you. He protected you. I mean, there, there were no women that looked like a million bucks like the women of Israel because of his, because of his war. Hey, think about that. Meditate on that and thank God for that, he's saying. But then he goes, look at verse 25, church. Now, this is very interesting. He repeats the mantra, how the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. And then, and then right at the end of the verse, it's like he zeroes in on really who he's talking about. Even from the very beginning, he zeroes in and he says, Jonathan, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Not, not, not my friend, not my buddy, not my fellow soldier, but he calls Jonathan his brother. My brother, Jonathan, I'm distressed for you. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. It surpasses the love of women. David is saying there's been no friend like you were to me. There's been no spiritual brother like you were to me. There was no source of edification in my life like you were to me. There was no person who, who spurred me on and sharpened me for God's greatness and God's praise and God's worthiness to have all of my life like you, Jonathan. And I remember you now and I weep for you and I mourn for you and I know I'm going to miss you. That's what he's saying here. He's zeroing in on the mighty one is specifically Jonathan because of his loyalty and his love and his service to the glory and kingdom of God. And so he closes, he closes the lamentation. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The weapons of war are Saul and Jonathan and the men who had led the army. So, this is, this is one of the more fluid, uh, less, less clear, concrete passages that we've studied so far as far as what is the absolute thing that God wants us to take away from this passage. And so what I want to do right now is I want us to ask a few questions. Let's ask a few questions. The first question let's ask is, what does this chapter tell us about God? And it's an interesting question to answer because no, not a single verse says, God is great, God is good. It doesn't say God is loving, God is merciful. No, no verse starts off with God as the subject and describes His character, His work, or His actions. And so some might be tender, well, what, what does this tell us about God? Well, it doesn't tell us anything about God. Oh, let us not be mistaken. Let's, let's, let's just rehearse a few things about what it tells us about God. First, it tells us that God is being faithful to carry out the curse of death. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel. And God essentially comes to them and says, You came from dust, to dust you shall return. God carries out the curse of death and he, and he fulfills His promise specifically to Saul. Can you remember when God said to Saul, your kingdom will not continue? Through Samuel, God said, Yahweh will give Israel and you in the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Yahweh will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. God is fulfilling His promises to Saul that Saul is going to perish. Third, I want to say this, God has weaved the capacity of grief and sorrow and weeping and lamentation into the human soul. Now think about this, church. Trees don't cry for other trees that are cut down by loggers. Flowers don't hold funerals for dearly departed flowers. Now, I will say this. Animals do experience some form of grief. But even in that, the quality, the, the depth, and the nature of the grief that animals feel is nowhere near what humans feel. The, the capacity that we have. And listen, God 
has given humans the capacity to grieve and to mourn over loss because God Himself grieves and mourns over death and over loss and over pain. You see, when we grieve and when we mourn, we are bearing the very image of God who not only has a sovereign hand, but He has a very soft heart. We are sensitive to death and pain. So God has done that. Now God has put a longing for justice and vengeance inside the human heart. God has put a longing for justice and vengeance inside the human heart. David exercises justice and vengeance on this Amalekite who dared to stick his hand up and kill Saul. He wanted justice. He wanted fairness. He wanted righteousness to be exacted. And he's done the same thing for you and I. We all have a longing for that because God has put it deep inside our hearts. And I want to say this. God desires His children to grieve when it's time to grieve. He desires His children to mourn when it's time to mourn, to cry when it's time to cry, to lament when it's time to lament, ultimately to heal when it's time to heal, to laugh when it's time to laugh, to rejoice when it's time to rejoice. But God has seasons and times and expressions that He has put inside the human soul for us to express at the right time, at the right moment. I want to say this. God values lamentation. He values it. I mean, think about this. Think about the life and ministry of Jeremiah. Think about the book of Lamentations. Think about the Psalms of Lament. Think about the whole book of Job. Think about even Romans chapter 7. I think, Ben, you referenced it in prayer the other day, where, where Paul is saying, oh, how I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. What is he doing right there? He's lamenting over his own sin. It's an, it's, a, it's an official expression of sadness and grief over his sin. And God desires His people to do that. And I'm going to get to this in a moment. But God, however, does not want us to grieve as those who have no hope. Right. He doesn't want us to lament as those who are helpless and without any promises. Let's ask the second question. What, is, what does the text tell us about humanity? What does the text tell us about humanity? You know, as we've been reading through Samuel, we've seen a lot of battles. We've seen heads cut off. We've seen people slain from one mountain to the next valley. We see violence yet again here, both what happened to Saul and what happens to this Amalekite. And I, and I just want to say that as a race, mankind is violent. We're violent. I mean, babies and toddlers will pinch and bite. Little children will hit and push. Teenagers will wrestle and fight. Adults will do all of the above. But listen to this, church. We use swords and clubs and spears and bows and arrows and guns and missiles and torpedoes, and kamikaze jets, and, and, and airplanes, and trucks to destroy other people. We're violent, and we've been violent ever since the fall, and we see Adam and Eve's son being violent against his own brother. We are a violent people. Why? Because we're a jealous people. James says that we desire, and we don't get and because we don't get, we demand what we want. And in demanding what we want, we fight and we quarrel and we scratch and we claw in order to get that thing which we demand. You see, man's violent nature is rooted in an idolatrous heart. Violence is the fruit, but idolatry is the root. And so we idolize power and wealth and success and safety. And when we don't get it, we demand it. And in demanding it, we hurt others. But you know what? At the very same time, we possess a sensitive nature. We're sensitive to, to death. We're sensitive to pain. We're sensitive to suffering. We're sensitive to people who are undergoing a difficult time. We're, we're, we're sensitive to physical turmoil. We're sensitive to those things. And we have to ask the question, why are we so sensitive to other people's needs and problems and struggles and pains and deaths? It's because we have the image of God inside of us. And God hurts 
and feels pain for us when we hurt and feel pain. And because of that, we do too. We do too. And so the reality is this, is that we should be thoughtful. We should be theological in the way that we experience pain and help others experience pain in their life. We should communicate with God our thoughts and feelings and struggles during our times of grief. And so the third question I want us to ask then is, how does this text point us to Jesus Christ? Surely some of you are asking that question. How does this text, how does this sadness, how does this heaviness, how does all of this point us to Christ? How can we have hope, Ryan? You're sitting here telling us about death and suffering and lamenting and all of this. How can we have hope? Can you remember when Jesus was caring about His ministry and word comes back to Jesus that one of His best friends had died? Lazarus. And he said, well, he's just sleeping. You know, he's kind of of putting them off a little bit. But then as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, Mary and Martha are absolutely beside themselves. They're not in the state of lamentation yet. They're in the state of mourning and grief and shock and awe. And they're upset because Jesus hasn't come yet. And Jesus finally comes and he's four days in the tomb. and, and, And And all of a sudden you get these people that are all around and Jesus is standing outside the tomb and He and He looks at the tomb and He looks at the people and He sees the gravity of all of this and He realizes that His own friend, someone who loves Him and whom He loves, is in the tomb and is rotting. The first thing that we read is not that Jesus explained the theological nature of life and death to them. The first thing that we read is that not that he writes a poem of lamentation about Lazarus. The first thing that we read is not a rebuke of the people being so distraught the way that they should not be. The first thing that we read is that Jesus did what? He wept. He wept. We've got to ask the question, the one who holds the whole world in his hands, the one who makes the world go around, The one who created the world and sustains the world and who knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. Why would he weep if he knows what he's about to do for Lazarus? He weeps because of the tragedy of death. He weeps because of the very first reason that death ever occurred because sin entered the world. He weeps because of the fact that he had to enter into humanity because of death and to conquer death and to enter into the struggles and travails and and disappointments of all people who experience the death of friends and family and people that they they care for so deeply. He weeps because death is worthy of weeping about. I want you to know that when someone you love dies, you should weep. You should mourn. Grieve. Don't feel embarrassed about it. Don't be ashamed about it. Don't bottle it up. I'm going to tell you something. Death is unnatural. It should never happen. That's not the way that God created life to be. We were created to live forever, enjoying God, worshiping God for an eternity. It's only rebellion that brought death. It's only sin that brought death. So it is right and good and proper for us to weep. So how does this text point us to Christ and what Christ can do in the midst of our weeping? It's because when Jesus wept, He didn't just stop. He didn't just point, write a poem of lamentation. He utters three words. Lazarus, come forth. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He shows His power over death. 
He shows His power over grief. He shows His power over sadness. He shows His power over loss. He shows His power over separation of friends. He shows His power over family uh, separation. He shows His power over all of these things. And all it is, church, it's just a foretaste of what He accomplishes in His own body, in His own death, and in His own resurrection. The fact is, Lazarus died again. There's no hope in Lazarus being resurrected or being raised from the dead. But there is hope that Jesus died for us and that He rose again from the dead never to die again because then we have hope, we have promise, we have peace knowing that we're going to be resurrected fully, finally, forevermore. You see, this text makes us long for a better king. This text makes us long for a more courageous, a more triumphant king who will not fail, who won't die on us, who won't embarrass us, who will come to us and lead us and love us and deliver us and give us unending peace and unspeakable joy. And what this text is saying, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that king for you. So this is what I'll ask you to do if you don't mind. If you can get your Bible and your notebook and things in a place where you can just bow your head and humble your heart. You don't have to close your eyes, but I just want you to get into a posture of worship. I want you to get into a posture of humbling yourself before God in light of the sting of death. Because if, 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 if you've, if you've kind of lost track right now with the sermon, if you've kind of lost kind of thinking clearly, I want you to dial back in because I want to tell you this right now. As you meditate right there in your seat, this is what I want to tell you I feel like the Lord is doing. I feel like the Lord is calling you to feel the pain of rebellion and failure and death. And just feel the pain that the reality is is that when Adam rebelled against God in the garden, you were there. He was your representative. You would have made the same choice that he made if you had that choice. And I want you to feel right now the pain of rebellion against a good and glorious and beautiful and majestic God. Feel the pain of the failure that that brings. Where brothers kill brothers. Where nations fight against nations. Where death is not just a reality, it's an epidemic. There is a 100% mortality rate. Everybody in this building will die. Feel the pain of death. Feel the sting of it. Feel the hopelessness of death right now. And some of you have brothers and sisters who have long since gone from you. You haven't seen them in years because they died. Some of you have mothers and fathers who you find yourself weeping over even five years, ten years, twenty years later. Some of you have sons and daughters who never even made it full term. And five and ten years later, you still find yourself weeping. Sad. Because of the pain of death. I'm saying to you, God doesn't want us to bottle it up. God doesn't want us to ignore it. God doesn't want us to escape it by drinking more or playing more golf or just getting our mind off of things. He wants us to feel it. And in feeling it, He then wants us to do this, to find hope in the Gospel. Jesus Christ is our only hope in light of death. He wants us right now to run to the cross. He wants us to see up on the cross the perfect man, the perfect God combined in one person, Jesus. And He's dying for us. He's paying the price for us. He's experiencing death for us. He's undergoing the penalty of hell for us. He's doing that for us. And then when He's put in the tomb, 
We're thinking that we have no hope. And on the third day, He raises from the dead. And He defeats the power of death. He defeats the power of hell. He defeats the power of darkness. And He ascends into heaven and He's alive, never to die again. And He's going to return and He's going to restore all things to to Himself. He will restore brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and best friends and sons and daughters. He will restore it all because He has triumphed over the grave, over death, over failure. He's the perfect King who delivers His people. And God wants us to run to Him today and find hope and help in Him. Church, He wants us to learn how to lament. To lament in a way that brings glory to God and joy to ourselves and to all people. And I want to pray a prayer of lament and then we are going to sing. Father in heaven, You are a good God. You made us not only for Your glory, but for our joy. You made us so that we would have unceasing happiness. Unending thrill and exhilaration over life under Your loving authority. God, we lament today. We lament that we've messed it up. We lament that we've rebelled against Your good will. Instead of worshiping You, we've worshipped ourselves. We lament over the fact that we've, we've been violent and hateful and selfish and jealous and covetousness. And, and, and we've, we have longed for our own glory rather than Yours. And Father, we lament that, that we're guilty. And not only are we guilty, the whole human race is guilty. And Father, we lament today that there is Massive divide in our country over race and authority and politics. We lament over the fact that we can't live together and love one another and be a community of people underneath Your grand authority. Father, we grieve over this. And Father, we lament that we have not been what You've called us to be as a church in this world. And Father, before we have to pray about ourselves, how the mighty have fallen, we would want to approach You this morning. We would ask that You would help us to channel the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. To live lovingly and humbly. That we might serve. That we might care. And that we might be on mission for Your praise that we might not have to lament our failure. Lord, we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.